Will there be peace in the Korean Peninsula? Will the Korean War finally end? What kind of policy can we expect from the incoming Biden administration towards the DPRK or North Korea? What's the political situation in North Korea and in South Korea? We'll talk about that and more with two special guests here on The Real Story on the Socialist Program. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. President Trump had talks with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, and though they were cut short, there were several important and lasting components. We'll talk about the possible new policy or line coming from the United States as it relates to Secretary of State nominee Anthony Blinken. We'll talk about the DPRK-U.S. relationship in the longer context of the past decades. We'll also speak about regional relationships and more. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker, and I'm joined by two experts on Korea and U.S.-Korea relations, Hyun Lee and Gregory Elich. Hyun Lee is a member of the Solidarity Committee for Democracy and Peace in Korea, and she is a writer for ZoomInKorea.org. Gregory Elich is also a member of the Solidarity Committee for Democracy and Peace in Korea, and an author of many articles and books whose work is at gregoryelich.org. And Elich is spelled E-L-I-C-H.org. Hyun, Greg, welcome. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Much appreciated. Thank you for joining us. I, I want to start with that very famous or maybe infamous speech by President Donald Trump, September 2017, He mounted the podium at the General Assembly at the United Nations. All the heads of state have an opportunity to address the world body in September annually. Uh, Donald Trump uh, took the occasion not to advocate for peace or diplomacy with North Korea, but rather to threaten to obliterate North Korea. I want to just help everyone remember that moment because it was quite dramatic. Nothing like that had come from a U.S. president towards another state at the podium of the General Assembly. Let's listen. The United States has great strength and patience. But if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready, willing, and able. So, Hyun Lee, um, really something, ready to obliterate or destroy, totally destroy North Korea. He's calling the head of state, Kim Jong-un, rocket man, using derogatory language. I mean, quite astonishing when you think about the fact that just, you know, within a year, there were serious negotiations going on. Two summits, one in Singapore, one in Hanoi, where the U.S. delegation led by Donald Trump and the North Korean delegation led by Kim Jong-un came to what might be a possible settlement of issues on the Korean peninsula. There was certainly the uh, the, um, statement, the, the statement of principle signed at the Singapore summit. But let's just talk before we, you know, discuss the reversal or the about face of Donald Trump. I mean, how does that kind of language or how might it resonate with Korean people in the North, the South, or overseas? Yeah, I mean, we really did come to a very dangerous situation back in 2017. Um, Everyone thought we were on the brink of possible nuclear war between the U.S. and the DPRK. Um, Listening to Donald Trump again, it reminds me of how you know, he has a way of using the most extreme kind of, you know, language, um, but actually reveals something that is 
inherently true about the United States and the relationship between the U.S. and North Korea. Um, I think it 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 primarily reflects um, how dangerous the armistice situation is. Um, most people don't know that the U.S. and North Korea have never resolved the Korean War. The war ended in a temporary ceasefire. Um, there is still an armistice uh, in place. Uh, 28,000 U.S. troops are still uh, in Korea, and they are always preparing to be able to fight tonight. Um, and they rehearse, um, uh, you know, simulations of preemptive strikes against North Korea. Um, war can resume at any time in Korea unless we actually replace the armistice with a permanent peace agreement. And that is something that Koreans and Korean Americans have been um, fighting for, for for many, many decades, seven de- decades, in fact. Hyun, I want to stay with you for a sec, a second. Um, there was a lot of commentary in the U.S. media that the eventual resumption of negotiations and the two summits that were held uh, between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump were a consequence of Donald Trump's tough talk. That kind of threatening message at the U.N. General Assembly scared North Korea, intimidated North Korea, brought North Korea to its senses and uh, allowed negotiations to begin. Now, it, it seems to me that's totally disingenuous and false. Uh, The U.S. actually pretty much did destroy North Korea. Uh, It bombed and bombed and bombed North Korea between 1950 and 1953 when the armistice was signed on, on July 27th, 1953. The main complaint of U.S. pilots by the end of 1951 or maybe even earlier, and that was two years before the bombing ended, the main complaint by the U.S. pilots was there was nothing left to bomb. Every every structure taller than one story was destroyed. Every structure. So it was carpet bombing. It was, quote, bombing them back to the Stone Age. It totally did destroy North Korea in one sense. But the North Koreans actually didn't stop fighting. I mean, they kept fighting. In fact, uh, Michio Kaku's book, uh, To Win a Nuclear War Using Secret Documents, revealed that in May 1953, right before the armistice was signed, that the United States uh, Pentagon, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, unanimously adopted a resolution to begin dropping nuclear bombs on North Korea and on China unless North Korea, un- and perhaps presumably under Chinese pressure, would come to come back to the negotiating table sign an armistice agreement to bring the war to an end, meaning that the U.S. military recognized that they couldn't actually defeat the North Koreans, that they needed to have some sort of uh, way out of the war, and the armistice was the way out without having to acknowledge that they had been defeated in their effort to con- conquer North Korea. So my thinking, Hyun, is if if American commentators think that the North Koreans, are their, their knees are shaking and they're scared of Donald Trump, and that's why they resume negotiations. I think it's one, again, uh, an indication of chauvinism, but also an indication of ignorance about the real thinking or policy or orientation of North Korea. Yeah, I think they have, Washington has an upside down view of the world and its relationship with the rest of the world sometimes. It's true. The reason why um, the talks between the U.S. and DPRK were possible in 2018 was not because the U.S. was getting ready to bomb North Korea, um, but because North Korea had announced in the previous year that it had actually completed its nuclear deterrence capability against the U.S. Um, And so that plus the... Um, diplomacy that was pursued by the South Korean president, Moon Jae-in, during the 2018 Olympics um, is what brought uh, both sides to the table um, to discuss peace. Um, And then, you know, uh, that breakthrough actually didn't lead to any fundamental change. Actually, um, the talks broke down the following year in 2019, and there hasn't been any progress since then. And recently, I listened to an interview on a podcast with Tony Blinken, the the 
Secretary of State um, for the Biden administration starting next year. Um, and he basically said the reason why um, there hasn't been any progress and North Korea has continued to uh, build on its nuclear arsenal and its missiles uh, capability is because Donald Trump met with the North Koreans and eased up on sanctions. And I said to myself, hold on, when did the U.S. actually ease up on sanctions against North Korea? I don't remember that. So again, he has an upside down view. The reason why the North Koreans continue to develop their missile capability is not because the U.S. eased up on sanctions. It's because the U.S. refused to give up on its maximum pressure campaign. Actually, it intensified sanctions. Um, so yeah, I think the U.S. view of its relationship with North Korea is completely upside down. And um, what's really needed um, for permanent, peaceful relationship is um, the implementation of what they agreed on in, in Singapore, which is to build new relations, to put the past hostile relationship behind the two countries, and to commit to building a permanent peace regime. Gregory Elich, let's turn to you. Hyun Lee mentioned the, the Singapore Summit Agreement. I had the opportunity to to be in Singapore. I was covering the summit as I did with the Hanoi summit for uh, my show at that time. And I have to say, I, I was lucky enough to be with the international press corps rather than the U.S. press corps because the U.S. press corps were like howling dogs. I mean, they were, I have to say, truly disgusting. They were arrogant. They were chauvinistic. When, when Trump and Kim Jong-un uh, signed the agreement, the Singapore summit at the end, one of them, I think it was a CNN reporter, yelled out to Trump, do you think he is your equal? And I was like, wow, wow. How, I mean, can you imagine some other, like the president of France meeting with Trump and the American media yelling after Trump signed an agreement with the prime minister of France or president of France, do you consider him your equal? Uh, again, just the the racism of the thing was so gross. But but Hyun's point is correct. The, the Singapore summit statement reads like this. Point number one, the United States and the DPRK commit to establish new U.S.-DPRK relations in accordance with the desire of the people of the two countries for peace and prosperity. Number two, the United States and the DPRK will join their efforts to build a lasting and stable peace regime on the North on the Korean Peninsula. And it's only point number three that we even start to mention the word nuclear. Point number three, reaffirming the April 27, 2018 Panmunjom Declaration, the DPRK commits to work toward complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And then there was point four, which was about exchanging the remains of soldiers or prisoners who had died during the Korean War. But point number one was all about uh, having better relations uh, and establishing a peace regime. Number three is North Korea commits to the possible denuclearization Again, uh, that was the recipe for a possible agreement. But later at the Hanoi summit, maybe under the influence of John Bolton and Pompeo, the U.S. changed its position and demanded complete denuclearization and walked away or forced the North Koreans, I would say, to walk away from the negotiating table. Anyway, uh, let's talk about what we might expect from the incoming Biden administration. Okay, one thing I've noticed uh, with uh, most of the appointees is this uh, running theme among all of them that uh, the United States needs to work with its allies and what it calls like-minded states to uh, build up coalitions to confront and pressure both China and North Korea. Uh, this is uh, how they want to approach uh, North Korea. So it's, it's a matter of not negotiating necessarily with North Korea, but a matter of applying more pressure. Anthony Blinken, the uh, appointed Secretary of State, uh, said in a CBS interview in September that uh, we have to work closely with allies like South Korea and Japan to press China to build economic pressure and squeeze North Korea to get it to the negotiating table. 
it's ironic. I mean, North, North Korea was coming to, no, to the negotiating table. It's perfectly willing to do so again. It's the United States that's not doing so. But Blinken is talking about we need to get these, our quote, allies to uh, and China to pressure North Korea to the uh, negotiating tables. And uh, Blinken also said we need to cut off uh, North Korea's avenues and accesses to resources. So he's looking at adding yet more sanctions, although North Korea is so severely sanctioned, 90% of its uh, export commodities are, are blocked because of UN sanctions. And one almost wonders, like, what's, what's left to, to sanction? Uh, U.S. Treasury officials have also gone to nations all over the world and uh, told them that uh, in any, any international transactions that uh, go through the United States, if it has anything to do with North Korea, that's going to be, those funds will be frozen. Well, since all international transactions have to pass through the United States, even if it's a, 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 a transaction between two unrelated countries, it still goes to the United States. In effect, that bans every country from having any transaction with North Korea, even if it's something that's not sanctioned. So what's left to sanction? One almost wonders. Uh, I, I hear you on that. I, I agree with you. Uh, again, let's talk, though, about what, what you expect might be coming. I'm, I'm looking back at the, at Newsweek. Uh, Blinken was interviewed by Newsweek. Here's what he said. Uh, well, actually, it's the Newsweek article quoting Blinken in that CBS interview. Quote, Trump has tried diplomacy combined with sanctions, but has been unable to make any more than superficial progress on North Korea. Blinken told CBS, quote, there was some merit in President Trump throwing the deck of cards up in the air and seeing what came from it. Because the fact of the matter is the policy that successive administrations have pursued over the last decades has not worked. Blinken said Trump's approach had failed and said that the next administration should look more to arms control then unlikely denuclearization, quote, this is Blinken, the hard reality is, is if it's not impossible, it's highly unlikely that we will achieve in any near term the complete denuclearization of North Korea. I just don't see that as realistic in the near term. What I think we can get is an arms control and over time, disarmament process put in place, but that requires enough pressure sustained and comprehensive to get North Korea to the table. Now, the last sentence is, you know, it's just, again, it's sort of chest thumping. Uh, and as both you and Hyun Lee have mentioned, that's not why North Korea is at the table. Um, but but again, do you, do you see something new coming? I mean, Blinken is suggesting that denuclearization is not realistic, but maybe an arms control uh, pact with North Korea. Now, that's more or less what North Korea was using as its formula for the negotiations, that the United States and North Korea would take step-by-step -step measures. The North Korea froze its nuclear uh, weapons testing program. It froze its missile testing program. Uh, it did other things that would indicate good faith bargaining on its part, waiting for a re reciprocity from the United States. But is Blinken, I mean, if Blinken's position is reflected here, and he is the Secretary of State, that would seem to me to be a possible change from the so-called strategic patience doctrine of the Obama administration, which was to not negotiate with the DPRK at all, and simply to impose more and more sanctions and more and more threats. Anyway, what's your thoughts? Yeah, so I think what Blinken was saying there in that CBS uh, news interview, which took place in January 2019, is, uh, and I'm also seeing that from other uh, appointees in the, for Biden, is that the complaint that uh, was that Trump was pursuing a denuclearization agreement, but there was nothing to stop North Korea from uh, continuing uh, research and development of its nuclear and missile programs. So what he's looking at is as arms control agreement as an interim message, uh, interim uh, stage, uh, still pursuing disarmament, which you think is going to take a long time. 
So there would be probably uh, negotiations on arms control and getting and ensuring that uh, North Korea's uh, programs are halted. Uh, in a later interview with CBS News in September of this year, <clears throat> Blinken said, our goal is clear, uh, Korea Peninsula uh, free of nuclear weapons. And he calls for a very tough diplomacy to get there, working with allies and partners. Uh, uh, Susan Rice is, uh, with NPR last year said that economic pressure needs to be sustained and uh, regroup with the nations to tighten sanctions and f- consider further sanctions, all, all in pursuit of disarmament. So I, I kind of see this, that there will be negotiations, but uh, more in the, near, in the near future aimed at uh, stopping North Korea's uh, development, further development of its nuclear and uh, missile programs with uh, disarmament as, uh, as the ultimate goal they're looking at. But as usual, like with the Trump administration and the previous administrations, the approach is uh, expecting North Korea to unilaterally disarm uh, follow the Lib- following the Libya model, uh, giving up all of its nuclear weapons and missiles and getting nothing in return other than vague promises about what they might get in the future. It must be recalled that uh, in Libya's case, it, ha- it was just in the very early stages of a nuclear program, whereas uh, North Korea has a very advanced uh, nuclear and missile uh, program. And uh, in Libya's case, even after it had fully uh, disarmed, it it complained that uh, the so-called the uh, so-called relief from sanctions were very slow in coming. The U.S. dragged its feet on that. The U.S. also applied uh, additional demands on Libya that were totally unrelated, like telling it how to vote in the United Nations and uh, telling it to cut off uh, military contacts with Syria and North Korea and other nations as well. So I think you, it, the U.S. approach is basically uh, unilaterally disarm. And maybe far off in the future, you might get slow uh, relief from sanctions, but we're going to be throwing extra demands at you in the meantime. I think the key question here is not whether they take a step-by-step approach or a grand bargain approach, but is the U.S. willing to take reciprocal steps towards peace? And the question that Washington should ask itself is not, how do we get rid of North Korea's nuclear weapons? It should be, what do we need to get to peace? And if we're talking about building a permanent peace regime on the Korean Peninsula, then it seems to me that all parties have a responsibility, not just North Korea. Um, it means a phased, uh, re- a, a process of reciprocal steps towards mutual arms reduction. Um, and I think the dilemma for the U.S. is that On the one hand, it doesn't want to allow North Korea to keep its nuclear weapons because it might encourage other countries to do the same thing, like Iran, South Korea, and Japan. The conservatives in those countries are already calling for their own nuclear weapons. And it cannot do that if it wants to maintain the nonproliferation regime. So it tried to get North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons through pressure and sanctions, but realized it didn't work. And then... North Korea says it will only give up its nuclear weapons if the U.S. gives up its hostile policies, which in my mind means taking reciprocal steps towards arms reduction, but the U.S. doesn't want to do that. So now this is the dilemma that will be facing the Biden team. And so how will they approach this dilemma? And I think the danger is that key appointees, including Tony Blinken on the Biden team, are even though he says past approaches have failed, it seems to me they're likely to repeat the same failed approach as in the past um, for the reasons that um, Gregory just mentioned uh, about Tony Blinken's recent comments. And then Joe Biden, in his phone conversation with President Moon Jae-in right after his election in November, he said to Moon Jae-in, um, you know, he used that phrase that the U.S. likes to use a lot. You know, the U.S. ROK alliance is a linchpin of security and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific region. And I note his choice of the words Indo-Pacific because that's a concept that was promoted by the Trump administration to basically bring India into the fold with Australia and Japan in an effort to isolate China, right? And so, you know, that the uh, choice of words to me indicates that the Biden administration wants the U, you know, intends to pressure South Korea to join uh, the so-called Quad 
uh, in the U.S.-led campaign to isolate China. So, you know, it seems to me that the Biden team foreign policy, at least in the initial period, will be, you know, continue to pressure and isolate North Korea to disarm North Korea, increase military strength in the region, and then get allies and China on board to isolate North Korea, which is the same same approach that has failed, that actually led North Korea to develop nuclear weapons in the first place. Um, I think if this is the approach, North Korea will undoubtedly continue to develop nuclear weapons and missiles. Um, so unfortunately, I think um, there is a danger. I think that, that, that renewed tension between the U.S. and North Korea is actually not a question of if, but when. Very interesting. Hyun, let's just talk about what North Korea might do. If, if, they, if the North Koreans view that one, which they know, that President Trump's efforts to uh, have a, or seeming efforts to come to an agreement with North Korea were, were basically sabotaged and undone by his advisors, but with the support of all sides in Washington, Democrat and Republican, the entire foreign policy establishment, perhaps with the exception of of Trump were uh, was against signing those the the Singapore summit. It seemed to me, but anyway, the North Koreans at that time they did things. They declared a moratorium on nuclear weapons tests. They said they had already secured enough in terms of technology and scientific expertise and weapons development that they didn't need to, and and thus from a secure point of view they could. Uh, agree to a moratorium. Uh, the same with the missile testing. Now, that, that those were important developments because if North Korea continues to do more nuclear weapons tests, develop more nuclear weapons, develops its own longer-range missile capacity, that will put a lot of pressure on uh, Japan, and especially with the, the more nationalistic, more right-wing, more militaristic elements within the Japanese establishment who will say, it's unacceptable to us that North Korea, our former colony, should possess weapons that can obliterate Japan, and we don't have nuclear weapons. And And it would seem to me that there, that will create the centrifugal force on, on nuclear weapons proliferation that, that the point that you made that the U.S. actually doesn't want. The U.S. doesn't want other countries to be acquiring nuclear weapons because it has the effect of, by decentralizing nuclear arsenals around the world, it, it has the impact of diminishing American hegemony. So it would seem to me that North Korea, if they anticipate that nothing's coming, there's not going to be any effort for a real settlement of the Korean Peninsula issues, there's not going to be any sanctions relief coming that they would resume nuclear weapons testing and nuclear weapons production, and they certainly can. Anyway, uh, Hyun, that's, that would be North Korea's card, so to speak, in this uh, complicated arrangement. We should go back to the last statement that we heard from Chairman Kim Jong-un. Uh, they ended the year last year at the Central Committee of the Workers' Party. Kim Jong-un gave a speech where he said, you know, we've tried for the past two years to negotiate in good faith with the United States, and we've seen no progress. And so we don't see any need to wait around for the U.S. anymore. And so he announced a pol I forget exactly the, the English translation of the expression he used, which means like all out, uh, basically building their political, military, and, and uh, economic strength. And so meaning, you know, developing their domestic economy uh, based on their philosophy of self-reliance and also develop, continuing to develop their military strength for deterrence purposes. And so North Korea has already announced that they will um, continue to build their strength rather than, you know, expect the U.S. to come to the table with a different offer um, and try to negotiate their way towards peace with the United States. A, a lot of you know, everyone's plans have been derailed by the, the COVID-19 pandemic, but this is the last we heard from North Korea. Um, and, I th and, and he also said the world, I forget exactly the phrase, but the world will uh, soon see a new strategic weapon. And so I do think that there is a danger, 
you know, the, recently the um, the U.S. forces Korea commander in South Korea basically said, "There's no need for us to continue to hold off, suspend our large-scale field training, our, our, our combined military exercise with South Korea." And you know, as you said, the the tacit agreement between North Korea and the United States is if the U.S. Suspends the large-scale military exercises. North Korea suspends its ballistic missile, the, the long-range missile tests, and the nuclear tests. If the Biden administration takes office in January, and the routinely scheduled military exercises is in March, if the Biden administration doesn't renew the suspension of those exercises, and the Pentagon goes ahead with it, and we know that they've already said they want to. I think we can. That could be a potential flashpoint between the U.S. and North Korea as early as March of next year. Um, so I think it will be very important for the U.S. to exercise caution if it wants to preserve any space for negotiations in the future with North Korea. It will be important for them to hold off on um, military exercises. And then fundamentally, ultimately, what we want to do is get back to the table to resume conversations on. Building a permanent peace regime in Korea, and I think that would require a fundamental review, a, sh a shift in U.S. policy. Gregory Illich, let me ask you about the way Americans are being informed. I I, I have to put air quotes around the word informed. I would say misinformed about U.S. Uh, Korean relations and about the DPRK. Every couple of weeks, there's another huge headline. Like we talked about one last week in our show, a North Korea vents fury at whatever, whatever about COVID. And it looks like they're maniacs and they're crazy and they're going to do wild and crazy things. And you can't even make out what North Korea thinks. They're just angry, lashing out. And then, you know, when you read the article, it turns out that there's no, there's no source at all. It's not even like they quote anonymous sources. They quote the people, the people who told us this said, uh, again, without attribution. But it has this, this impact of constantly reinforcing a, a negative, caricatured, racist, demonized image of the DPRK. Now, the whole thing is that and we go back to Trump's speech at the UN that we started with. If North Korea continues, he said earlier in his speech, to threaten world peace, then we have to be prepared to totally annihilate the country. Now, North Korea's military budget in 2016 was about $4 billion. That's the size of the New York City Police Department budget. The State Department in 2019 estimated that North Korean military spending had actually been reduced and was now $3.6 billion. So it gone down in the last three or four years, which, would, which might make sense if, if North Korea has the security of nuclear weapons, maybe it would spend less on conventional weapons. Certainly, Kim Jong-un was making the argument that in order to divert money from the military to consumer goods and other things that humans actually use, which are not military products, uh, building a nuclear arsenal would allow them to do that. Now, at the same time, South Korea's military budget, I believe, I looked at the statistics for 2018, was $43 billion. Again, North Korea, $4 billion. South Korea, $43 billion, uh, 10 times greater. There are no foreign troops in North Korea. There's no Russian troops. There's no Chinese troops. But in South Korea, there are 30,000 or so U.S. troops. There are no foreign military bases that threaten the United States or U.S. allies in North Korea. But in South Korea, the United States has military bases. They're creating the THAAD so-called missile defense shield. Again, we talk about topsy-turvy or upside down or the Alice in Wonderland presentation. The idea that North Korea is on the march and is a threat to world peace, when you look at just those basic core numbers, it tells such a different story. And I have to say, outside of shows like ours and alternative media, none of that kind of presentation is carried out at all 
in any of the corporate-owned media, whether it's the so-called liberal MSNBC or CNN or the more conservative Fox News, it's across the board. Again, for people who might be just learning about Korea for the first time, help them understand why the Alice in Wonderland upside-down perceptions are presented to Americans. Of course, you've raised a number of points in that regard already. I'd also add that uh, North Korea's entire GDP is less than the state of Vermont, and Vermont uh, ranks dead last among U.S. states. So we're talking about a minuscule uh, economy and, as you say, a minuscule military budget. Uh, And North Korea also has been at peace since the end of the Korean War in 1953. It's not attacked anyone in all those decades. Meanwhile, the United States has uh, bombed and invaded Vietnam and uh, tried to overthrow the government in Nicaragua, bombed Yugoslavia, invaded Iraq, and uh, on and on and on. It's uh, conducting military operations all over the world, launching drone strikes, killing, I think the last estimate I saw was something like 14,000 people have been assassinated through drone strikes. so we're talking about a very aggressive power that the United States is, and it's, ta- and it's portraying North Korea as a threat. Uh, it's, it's basically uh, turning black into white and reversing the actual s- state of affairs. Just imagine if, uh, say, China or, or Russia were conducting joint operations with Cuba in the uh, Caribbean, uh, practicing the bombing and invading of the United States and assassination of U.S. officials, the, the media would go absolutely berserk. But when the United States does that to North Korea, that's just normal, nothing to take any notice of. But even that example is incomplete because uh, it leaves out the tremendous power imbalance between North Korea and uh, the United States. So to term North Korea a threat to the United States is af- absolutely laughable when the, when the U.S. military is ramp- rampaging all over the globe Hyun, um and and Gregory too. I I want to I want to just sort of help us understand because again, Americans are getting such bad information or misinformation about politics in well, politics everywhere, but politics in Asia and in the Korean Peninsula in particular. Again, the the media will quote over and over again the as as Biden said, the linchpin of the U.S. South Korean alliance. Well. South Korea, it's, it's, it feels less like an alliance and more like South Korea had been an artificially created government based on the division of the Korean Peninsula by uh, the, the agreement that ended World War II. And at that time, two young U.S. officials, one of whom I believe was Dean Rusk, took a pen and drew a line through the Korean Peninsula and said, this will be the American zone of control, and this will be the Soviet zone of control, and both sides promised to leave in in 1948, and the Korea would be reunited through some sort of democratic process. Well, the Soviets did leave in, leave in 1948. Here we are in 2020, there are still you know 30,000 American troops. But people who are not Korean and who are getting their news from the American media won't really understand the profound impact the division of this country has for Koreans, Korean families. And of course, it's still the American influence in South Korean politics is so profound that even if a South Korean government wants to restore good relations with the North, it has a big hurdle. And the hurdle is less in Pyongyang and more in Washington. So two two issues that I'd like to explore as we sort of start to wrap up is I want to understand how Koreans view it. How What's the standing of Moon Jae-in, for instance? He, he wagered so much of his political capital on coming to an agreement with the North. Uh, he certainly facilitated the Trump administration's decision to engage the North. He was very popular at the beginning. What's his status now? And what might be the expectations among Koreans going forward? And also... Uh, I do want to. I do want to have the non-Korean audience understand what the division of this country and this society, which had been a unitary society for so long, for thousands of years, and one of the most advanced societies on the planet Earth, what what that means or has meant for Korean people. Uh, so, Hyun, why don't you start? 
Thanks for that important question. So, um, you know, your audience might remember the candlelight protests in 2017, where millions of people in South Korea took to the streets to oust the previous president, Park Geun-hye. She's in jail now on corruption charges. Um, and that allowed the liberal Moon Jae-in administration to take power. Um, and he became president with a pledge to resume engagement and cooperation with the North. This was actually, um, you know, part of his popular appeal. Um, and, you know, in the inter-Korean summit in 2018, where Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong-un met in Panmunjom and then also in Pyongyang, um, that same year, they agreed on a number of initiatives for peace and cooperation. Unfortunately, there has not been much progress in this regard, and that is primarily due to interference by the United States. There are many examples of this, but just as one example, Moon um, Jae-in's top priority was to connect the railways of South Korea and North Korea. Um, and the South Korean railway inspection team uh, wanted to go to the north to inspect the the state of their railways system. They couldn't cross to the other side. Why? Because the U.S. under the guise of the UN command has full control over the DMZ, and no South Korean, even military generals, can enter the DMZ without U.S. approval, even though that is Korean land. South Koreans have no right to enter their own land without U.S. approval. Um, and the U.S. denied entry to the South Korean inspection team. So that project has not made any headway. Um, President Moon Jae-in's policies, unfortunately, have been contradictory. And it reflects a broader dilemma that South Korea faces right now. Um, on the one hand, it wants to engage the North, and it also wants to strengthen economic relations with China. But uh, on the other hand, it faces pressure from the United States to strengthen its alliance with the U.S. and be part of the broader U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy. So specifically, this means strengthening the combined war exercises with the U.S. It means procuring strategic weapons from the U.S., it means the additional deployment of the U.S. THAAD missile defense system. Um, and the Biden administration will definitely try to strengthen the U.S.-South Korea-Japan trilateral alliance, um, and they want to expand missile defense cooperation. Um, and then um, in terms of the U.S. Uh, strategy against China, it wants to deploy additional THAAD batteries in South Korea and also mid-range missiles in South Korea. These are all policies that exacerbate military tension, not only between the two Koreas, but in the region, um, including Japan, including China. Um, and if South Korea um, accepts the U.S. pressure, then uh, Korean Peninsula will again become um, the site of, you know, Cold War-style conflict. Um, and... You know, South Koreans are keenly aware uh, of, of this dynamic. Um, and, you know, I want to remind, uh, you know, your audience of agreements between the North and South to um, move, to work together, to move towards peaceful reunification. Um, I'll mention, you know, the first formulation on reunification was, was in 2000, the first summit between President Kim Dae-jung in South Korea and Kim Jong-il. And in the June 15th de declaration, uh, what they agreed to was we will resolve the question of reunification independently through the efforts of the Korean people who are, quote, the masters of the country. So meaning without foreign interference. And then they said, you know, there is a common um, agreement between the South and North in our concepts of reunification. So South Korea had proposed a one nation, two systems uh, um, proposal, a model. North Korea had proposed a similar uh, model, um, except a, with the addition of a supranational body that um, coordinates efforts for unification. Um, you know, the, the two Koreas have already agreed on this and have 
uh, reaffirm their commitments to this in subsequent summit um, agreements, um, but they're not able to move forward because of the U.S. Um, presence in South Korea. Gregory Illich, let me turn again. We're we're time is running short, so I want to I want to move forward uh, towards trying to get a, a sort of a big picture understanding of what's likely to happen. And of course, none of us have a crystal ball. We don't know. We have to go based on the, you know, trying to understand the statements of incoming Biden administration officials. And of course, Biden himself, we look at the the Pentagon's overall military doctrine, which is uh, prioritizing major powered conflict uh, with China uh, and Russia. But principally China. Uh, President Obama in Australia announced the pivot to Asia in 2011, and some people were kind of confused by that euphemistic language. Uh, Every time the U.S. has pivoted towards Asia, it's been very bad for Asia. The U.S. pivoted towards Asia in 1899 with the invasion of the Philippines, and a million Filipinos died. Uh, December 7th, 1941, the U.S. pivoted towards Asia after the Pearl Harbor attack, and that ended up with the decimation of of Japan and the, the dropping of nuclear weapons on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Five years later, the U.S. pivoted towards Asia once again by the invasion of Korea, June 25th, 26th, 27th, 1950. Then a couple of years later, a pivot to Asia once again with the war in Vietnam, and two to three million Vietnamese died. So now the U.S. is pivoting to Asia again, and Asia, of course, is the rising uh, center of economic activity. It's obviously the up-and-coming part of the world. Uh, It's perceived by the U.S. as an opportunity, but also as a fundamental challenge to its hegemony. And there you have DPRK sharing a border with China, uh, has a long-term relationship with China. It has a shorter part of its border with Russia. Uh, so, in many ways, Korea and North Korea are are in the crosshairs. During the last couple of years, under the Xi Jinping leadership, China and DPRK relations obviously warmed. They got better. Uh, and uh, the strategic, long-term strategic relationship was was reaffirmed once again. Now, China, like all governments, is going to be looking at the Biden administration, looking for clues, as we are, about what's likely to come, what's the U.S. policy. Uh, but the the Chinese-U.S. relationship, of course, is central. How do you think this will impact? What's your? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but how do you see DPRK-Chinese relations going forward? There was this obvious effort to improve relations uh, do you see that continuing? I see it escalating. Actually, uh, going back a few years ago, relations between the DPRK and China were strained uh, due to uh, North Korea's development of a nuclear program. And I think Chinese officials were concerned that the U.S. might uh, use that as a pretext to uh, launch a military buildup in the Asia-Pacific, which, of course, it, it did indeed. Um, however, the... Uh, writing is clearly on the wall that the United States is going to go in that direction no matter what anyways. And uh, as China is a rising economic power, uh, the United States regards uh, international ec- economic relations as a zero-sum game. In other words, it can only be one economic power. It's not a matter of cooperation and reciprocity. It has to be domination, economic, military domination all the way. So the writing's on the wall for the Chinese, and uh, this actually helped to trigger this warming of relations between China and North Korea. Uh, So in April of this year, the North Korean Senate Economic Delegation to Beijing to discuss uh, trade and emergency food and medical aid, and and, uh, China's responding with that aid. And uh, in October, on the 75th anniversary of the founding of the North Korean Workers' Party, uh, Xi Jinping sent a letter to Kim expressing his intent to successfully defend, consolidate, and develop bilateral relations. So he's looking to actually expand that relationship. And uh, he added uh, that as comrades and friends, China heartily rejoices over North Korea's achievements. So that kind of language I don't think would have come out of China in years past. In the, 
there's so it's more like a, an approach of solidarity is what I think we can expect in the future in the face of U.S. hostility. That's how I see it. And I, my hope is that uh, given uh, U.S. hostility, that China will find ways to uh, side, get around the san- UN sanctions and uh, try to uh, save North Korea from the economic strangulation that the U.S. is trying to impose. I, Hyun Lee, I, in our last 90 seconds, I'm going to give you the last word. Um, if Korea was united, it would be a country of perhaps 80 million people, highly educated population, very productive population. It would undoubtedly become an economic and political and diplomatic powerhouse on the world scene. What's the message? What's the message that the American people need to hear that they're not hearing uh, again, Biden is coming in. People, a lot of people who are anti-Trump think, "Oh, the nightmare of Trump is ending." But for Korea, the nightmare of a of a war without end hasn't ended. So, what's the basic core message? If you if you were on national TV and you had one minute to tell the American people something, what would that something be? I think it's entirely up to us the course that Washington chooses um, vis-a-vis the region in Asia Pacific. China does not have to be a perpetual enemy. Why? You know, I think it's important for us to pause and really question: Is it really the enemy? Just like we didn't do when we plunged uh, headlong into a twenty-year protracted war in the Middle East. You know, um, we need to ask ourselves: You know, is increased militarization in the region really the only path forward. Um, I think there is a different path. There is a way to make peace with North Korea. There is a way to cooperate with China so that we don't exacerbate Cold War divisions again uh, in the region. And, you know, I think in the U.S., sometimes I feel that the left or progressives, we have this... um, pessimistic notion of the military-industrial complex, that it is all too powerful. There's nothing we can do. Um, But I don't believe that's true. I don't think we should overlook the power of the people. I think that you know, I don't believe that the, the, the world will always be unipolar um, and that we have a lot of power and we need to be consistently pushing for the path towards peace, support for sovereignty and disarmament, global disarmament. And it's entirely up to us to push Washington to change course. That's the voice of Hyun Lee. We were also joined by Gregory Elitch. Hyun Lee is a member of the Solidarity Committee for Democracy and Peace in Korea. She's a writer for zoominkorea.org. Gregory Elitch is also a member of the Solidarity Committee for Democracy and Peace in Korea. He's an author of many articles and books. His work can be found at gregoryelich.org, and Elich is E-L-I-C-H.org. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.